We should be faithful to God's word, the gospel mystery. We should be faithful in our family life. And then we saw that to get leaders, to get deacons within church life, they need to be tested and proven. And so we need to be seeing people develop as deacons. And God willing, as a church, we'll be able to nominate people and they will have that title. But we all want to be those that are serving God. A deacon, simply put, must be a faithful Christian. And the fact of the matter is we all should be faithful Christians. Now, as we carry on in this chapter 3, we're looking at the last, last little section of this. And and this last section is something that's very familiar to us because when I introduced the subject of of Timothy, when I started this series, we did an overview of the book of Timothy. And right in the center of this book, we're told why it was written. 3, 14, and 15 explains the reason for this letter. The apostle Paul was concerned for the church at Ephesus. He was wanting to visit this church. It's a church that he loved. It was a church that he was involved in planting and being part of it. And he had something very important to tell this church. He had a message for this church. He was concerned that things were going wrong. He was concerned that there were uh, false teachers that were trying to steal the sheep. He was concerned that the way they were worshipping was going wrong. He was concerned about these things. And it was so important that he had to write a letter to the church. And and he wrote this letter because he was concerned that there was going to be a delay. He wanted to visit. He made a plan to visit. But Paul knew that his plan sometimes went wrong. Sometimes he got shipwrecked. Sometimes he took a beating. Sometimes he was put in prison. Sometimes he was involved in a revival and he had to stay somewhere. And so his plan was to get there. But in case he was delayed, he wrote this letter to Timothy. And he wrote this letter to Timothy as verse, verse 14 says... I hope to come to you soon, but I write these things. Why? So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. The church in Ephesus, under Pastor Timothy and the other elders, needed to know how to behave in church how church life should be, how they should be as believers who gathered together. And we too need to hear that. This is why this letter has been saved for us. It was very much for them then and their need. And it's very much for us now as a, as a guide to help us as a church to know how to behave as a church. See, these verses go on and the depth of these last two verses here in this chapter 3 are immense. They're just truly amazing. We're going to look at at these last two verses of this chapter uh, 3 with two headings. The church is, and then the truth is. So firstly, the truth is, and we can see this very clearly in in how it sets it out in verse uh, 15. The, The church is the household of God. Paul was reminding the Ephesians that they were a family. They were a household. We we all know that language, don't we? We know what our household is. For for many of us, our surname tells us that. I I am part of the Swanson household. 
And, and my children are part of my household. And bigger pitch than that, there is Mummy Daphne and Pastor Andrew, and they are the older citizens of our household. We are a household together. We are family. And, and, and Paul is reminding Timothy and the church at Ephesus that they are not just sole people. The church is a household. The church hold is a family of people that are brought together. Paul said to the Galatians, he put it like this in 3 verse 28, there's neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. As a church, we are one in Christ Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You come from Liberia, Nigeria, Cameroon, Botswana, Namibia, England, America, all around the world. But we're united together and we are brothers and sisters together because we are one in Christ. We are the household of God. In fact, Jesus Christ is our big brother. Just get a hold of that in your minds. Romans 8, 26, talking about God. He said, for those whom he foreknown, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. If we were Turkish, we're thinking that Jesus is our Abbey, our big brother, the firstborn. Now, isn't that amazing? And so Paul was telling this church, you are the household of God. You are family. Some people pay me the compliment or my father the compliment. I'm not sure which it is. And they say to me, oh, you just look just like your father. Or they say to my dad, oh, James looks just like you. Or people say that Jacob looks just like me. There's a family resemblance, isn't there? And we don't want to let our families down, do we? We don't want to be an embarrassment to our family name. Part of the reason you're studying hard is for your family's benefit. One day there'll be that picture in your family's house with you with your little flat hat on, your gown on, and you're holding the diploma. And you've raised the family's name, haven't you? You don't want a picture of you on the family wall of you outside the prison with a release date, do you? That would disgrace the family. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, in the church, are we living like a brother of Christ? That's our mark. We're the household of the living God. Secondly, living God. The church is of the living God. The church at Ephesus was not Paul's. Yes, he was the daddy founder. Yes, he was the geo, if you like. Yes, he was the main man at the time. But the church at Ephesus was not Paul's church. The church at Ephesus hadn't been given to Timothy by Paul. Paul didn't say, I've set it up now. I need to find someone because I want to go and set up somewhere else. I need to make my pyramid bigger. I need to get more tithes and offerings. I need to pull someone else in. Ah, oh, Timothy, I give it to you. No, he didn't give it to Timothy. And, and the church at Ephesus didn't belong to the members. It was not their church. They were members of the church, but it was not their church. It is the church of the living God. This title rings back to the timeless nature of God. 
both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is referred to the living God. And in the Old Testament, his title of living God was used when he did great things. Great things, like when he gave the Ten Commandments, he was referred to as the living God who is in the fire. In, in Joshua, when those great battles were won and God showed his might, it was the living God that showed his might. In Kings and in Chronicles, when he overcame enemies, it was the living God. In Kings and Chronicles, when God brought judgment upon his people, it was the living God. In the Old Testament prophecies, when prophecies were brought, it was the living God that brought prophecies. It's this living God who the church belongs to. And the living God's greatest greatest achievement, if you like, if you can put it like that, is establishing and keeping his church. It's bringing his family together. So many establishments we know nowadays have the legacy, are the legacy of a dead person. The Boy Scouts movement, uh, Baden-Powell, he was the leader of it. He's dead. It's a legacy now. A lot of football teams were established by dead people. Countries and continents have been named and established by dead people. And the huge difference now is this church belongs to the living God. The church is of the living God. And so, friends, we are part of something greater than ourselves. Left Kosher Protestant Church is owned by the living God. And so we have to take care. This is God's church. The living God's church of great immense power and glory. And so we don't tell God how we do things. God tells us through his word how we are to relate to him, how we are to worship him. We don't do things how it suits us or how we like it. But we have to be led by the living God. And dare I say it, that's why we shouldn't be late to church. Because it is the living God's church. So the church is the household of God. The church is of the living God. And then thirdly, here we see it is a pillar and buttress of truth. Now this illustration has been very real to the Ephesians. They were in the shadow of one of the eight wonders of the ancient world. The temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana of the Ephesians, was a huge monumental uh, affair. It was uh, 135 meters long. It was uh, 69 meters wide. This is a big, big building by today's standards. But 2,000 years ago, this was just immense. And, And this building was actually 18 meters high. So pretty much nearly as high as our building here, the whole height of it. And the building was held up by 127 marble columns. These are not marble. They're plaster Paris. They are concrete dropped, yes? These were quarried out of a, a marble quarry, one solid piece of marble. 127 of them, 18 meters high. And so when Paul said to Timothy, and, and when the Ephesians heard this pillar, they had that in their mind. They knew these great big pillars held up the roof of the temple of Artemis. The church is to hold up the truth like those pillars held up that temple. 
And just as the temple of Artemis stood out on the landscape, you could walk miles away and you could look and you would see it there, standing up tall and proud. The church should stand out by proclaiming and defending the truth. We are light in the darkness. Now, is that how we at LPC hold up the truth? Because it should be. Because that's what God wants of us. John Stott said in his commentary on this passage, he said, the church and the truth need each other. The church depends on the truth for its existence and the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. And so we see here, we're moving from what the church is to the truth. And our second main heading is, the truth is. The truth is. Verse 16 says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The truth is the mystery of godliness. Now, we have a a different idea of the word mystery nowadays. We think of mystery as in a murder mystery, something that we don't understand, something that's difficult to get our heads around, something that's hidden from us. And, and, And the gospel message is a mystery because the gospel message is hidden to many people. But it's not a mystery to those who have had their eyes open to the truth. And those who are in the church and of the church and of the living God, we have had that mystery revealed to us. So what is this mystery? What is the mystery of godliness? And it's really interesting. The passage gets really, really interesting. Because what Paul does, he sets out the mystery of the gospel. He sets out the mystery of godliness by quoting an ancient hymn. I don't know if you'd known this or picked this up before, but those six lines at the end of verse 16 are an ancient hymn. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Well, a scholarly man called Walter Locke tried to put this into English verse so he could have an idea of what it might have sounded like as a, as a hymn. And he puts it like this. In flesh unveiled to mortal sight, kept righteous by the Spirit's might, while angels watched from the sky, his herald sped from shore to shore, and men believed the wide world o'er when he in glory passed on high. Perhaps that helps you get a bit of a sense of the fact that this was a hymn. Now, I don't know the tune. If I'd known the tune, I could have tried to sing it to you. So we can be very thankful that we didn't know the tune. But what we do know is this has survived 2,000 years. Isn't that incredible? These six lines in contain and in it is condensed the doctrine and the truth and the mystery of godliness and the gospel. And so we need to get our minds around it, don't we? 
This is, this is the truth that we as a church should be upholding. This is the truth that is the pillar that is the church. What is this? Now, just as a, an aside, I, I just want to highlight something here. Our hymns that we sing now need to be like this. Theologically sound. This hymn didn't survive because it sounded great. This hymn didn't survive because it gave people a great emotional high. This hymn survived because of the depth and the truth that it contained. And as we sing, we need to be able to sing things with great depth and great truth to the honor and the glory of God. Because so often, sadly, if we sing untruth, it becomes our theology. What we need to do is make sure that we are singing biblically and praying biblically and reading God's word and worshiping in a way that glorifies God, just as this short, short hymn does. Now, over time, there's been different ways suggested of how to look at this hymn. Some people break it down into two, three-line verses. And you can see, possibly in your Bibles, how that is set out. It goes one, two, three, in, and then back out, one, two, three, like that. Some people have have put it as two lines of verse, or or sorry, three two-line verses of contrast. And so they see light and spirit, angels and nations, uh, world and glory. And and, and they say it's it's contrast. And then some people see it as three two-line couplets of truth. Well, I I, I think that they're all interesting ideas. But to help us this morning, I want us to, to look at it like it was originally written. And it was originally written as six lines. And it's not subdivided. And so I think it's best understood if we take these statements of this hymn in chronological order. So we're just going to go through it line by line, and we're going to see there is a chronological order. Jesus, the man. Jesus, the man. He was manifest in the flesh. Talking about the the church of the living God. He's talking about the mystery of godliness. And it says he was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. There is a huge truth hidden behind these six words. These six words tell us that God left the glory of heaven and was born into this world as a man. It tells us the amazing thing that we can't get our minds around, that God was fully God and yet fully man at the same time. And that baby that was born in Bethlehem those 2,000 odd years ago was God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in this world. As the Gospel of John tells us in in chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became flesh. Not only did he become flesh, but he dwelt among us. Christ dwelt among us. He dwelt among mankind. And as he was living his life, Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never sinned in action. He never sinned outwardly. He never sinned when other people were watching. He never sinned when God the Father was watching. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was sinless. 
And maybe you can do a good job of being sinless on the outside. But when we put a magnifying glass to our hearts and our minds, we see that they are full of sin and Christ's mind and his thoughts were all pure. He was full of grace and truth. He lived a perfect life. God's word tells us that the wages of sin is death. Christ never sinned and yet he took the wages of sin, which is death. Why did Jesus give up his life? Why did Jesus, who was manifest in the flesh, die on the cross? He didn't deserve to. Only sinners deserve to die. Someone who's never sinned does not deserve to die. Christ dying was more than his physical death. Christ dying on the cross was when he took upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of his people. He gave up his life as a ransom for many. For each and every one of you here that know Jesus as your Savior, the weight of your sin, the weight of the sins you have committed, the weight of the sins you are committing, the weight of the sins that you will commit was placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wrath of God burnt upon him. And God the Father in some remarkable way forsook and punished his only son so that we could be made right with God. This is a mystery of godliness. And, and that first line of the hymn, we could go on and we could go on, and I'm sure that you could preach sermons and sermons and sermons on that. But we want to move on. We want to move on to the second part of this hymn. It's basically Jesus the Risen. Vindicated by the Spirit. Well, why am I saying that vindicated by the Spirit means that Jesus has risen? You see, Jesus did not stay dead. His body was laid in the tomb. His broken body, his messed up body, his body that was so marred that you couldn't recognize it as Jesus. His body that was broken for us was laid limp and dead in the tomb. And the stone was rolled over the tomb. And the seal was set on the tomb. And for those who are looking on, it looked like it was hopeless. And yet in that time, the most remarkable thing of the world and of eternity was happening. Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from that tomb. The stone was rolled away. He walked out. He went out. He was no longer there. How did this happen? Well, Romans 1, 4 tells us. It gives us a clue. And it was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. The Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And even more clearly... In Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That Jesus was vindicated by the spirit 
when he bust out from the grave. He was risen. His life came back to that mortal body of his. The Spirit did this. And he was vindicated by the Spirit. And so we see that Christ came as man and died as man. And he died paying the price of the sins of his people. But he didn't stay dead because the Holy Spirit worked this immense miracle and proved that the price of our sins was paid and proved the transaction was complete. And now Christ is risen. He is alive. And this was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe this hymn has survived 2,000 years because these truths are immense. These truths deserve hymns and hymns and hymns and more hymns. These truths deserve our worship of this God who has done this for us. And then Jesus has seen. Jesus has seen. Who is Jesus seen by? He's seen by the angels. When Jesus came to this world, who announced his birth? The angels. They saw him. And then when Jesus was being tempted, who was there to minister to him? The angels. And then at his transfiguration, the angels were there. And before his crucifixion, the angels came and helped him. And at his resurrection, the angels are there. The angels saw this. And you see, the interesting fact here is this is when we know that the angels saw him. But I think those angels were around all the time. Just as there's angels around us now, the angels are around Christ, seeing what was going on. Matthew 28, verse 5, at the resurrection, the angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. The angels saw this. The angel saw this and delighted in it. The angel saw this and worshipped. The angel saw this and rejoiced. The angels were first-hand witnesses to these things. And you'd kind of think that perhaps God would give them a special job to do. Like proclaim it to the world. But the wonder of wonders is this. He's given that job to us. Jesus proclaimed is the next heading I want to bring from this hymn. Jesus proclaimed, proclaimed among the nations. The disciples were commissioned to take the gospel message. Pastor Phil exhorted us earlier today and when he was doing that I smiled because I knew that I was coming to this. Why should we be wanting to reach out to the lost? Because it's our role. And it's part of this hymn, and it's part of the great truth that Jesus is to be proclaimed. Acts 1, verse 8, just before Jesus left them, he said to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And he carries on. And in Judea. And he carries on. And into Samaria. And then he carries on and says, to the ends of the earth. That's why the gospel is in Nigeria and Namibia. That's why the gospel has got to Korea. That's why the gospel is in America and South America. That's why the gospel is all around the world. It's because at Pentecost, when Jesus was proclaimed to the nations, people came to know Jesus as their Savior. And they went out and they proclaimed it. And people have died and given their lives proclaiming this gospel. But the gospel message has continued because as the hymn carries on, Jesus is believed. 
And not just believed a little bit, he's believed on in the world. Jesus is believed. And so just on from Jesus telling the people to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost. And Peter was the primary preacher on that occasion, and the others no doubt were involved. And after that immense sermon, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, those that received his word, as it reads in Acts 2.41, says they were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls people believe get this yeah you might think to yourself why should i share the gospel because people believe the holy spirit works oh it couldn't happen in ciu yes it can oh it couldn't happen in the east yes it can oh it couldn't happen in left kosher yes it can because the gospel is still going out in power this is the pillar of truth God's church is growing in the most unlikely of places. In the 1970s, when I was born, a long time ago, in Cambodia, there was a despot called Pol Pot, and he killed over one and a half million of his own citizens, slaughtered them. And amongst those people were the church. He hated Christians. And after he'd wreaked his havoc, they say that the church in Cambodia was reduced to around about 200 people. And now, the church stands at over 300,000 people. The gospel goes out. Again in the 1970s, well actually in, in 1970, 0.1% of the Chinese population was Christian. 0.1%. And now it stands at 10.6%. They were boasting that they got rid of God. The whole regime came up against God and God just says, No, my church will prevail. Saudi Arabia, a Muslim, Muslim country, Back in 1970, it was 0.3% of the people there were Christians. And now it's nearly 5%. A closed country. How can God work? Because God works. He is believed on in the world. And just looking around here today at the different nationalities, we can see the truth of this, that God is believed on in the world. And then the hymn, if it can, it gets even bigger. It comes to its last line. It comes to the end of the symphony. It comes to the, the crowning part of it. And Jesus is glorified. He's taken up in glory. And some people say, oh, the chronological order has been spoiled here. It's been spoiled. It's not, this can't mean that because Christ went up to heaven in Acts 1, 10 and the, the, the whole other bits have been proclaimed. The nations have been believed by the world happened after that. Acts 10, Acts, sorry, Acts 1, 10 reads like this. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went. Jesus went up into heaven. Jesus is sat in heaven right now on the right hand of God. And there are two men in robes beside them. And it's true, Christ is in glory and he is in heaven. 
And he is interceding on the right hand of us. But if we read on to verse 11, and this is why we have to read the whole of God's word and have it all in its context. Because these men in white robes, they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Bit of a silly question. We're standing there because our master's just been taken away. The risen king of kings. Christ has been exalted and he's gone up to glory. That's why we're looking. Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as he saw him going to heaven. Jesus is returning. This is the truth, the, the pillar that the church stands on. This is a truth of the living God. There is something more to look forward to. Sundays we look forward to, but that's not it. Special days of Christmas and New Easter we look forward to, but that's not it. What we should be looking forward to is when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, we will be taken up to glory. And we shall sin no more. And we shall cry no more. And there'll be no more pain. And there'll be no more weeping because that is the end of the beginning. And this hymn takes us to this point. It takes us to this remarkable end. Jesus is coming again and he's going to be glorified and we're going to be with him and we're going to look on his face and we're going to see him. What an amazing hymn. I want to sing it. I want to shout it. I want this to be your hymn. You see, what do we do with this truth? What do we do with this truth? What do we do with this hymn? Well, if we are part of the living God's church, we will believe. We will believe. And so the question I want to ask everyone here is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has Christ died on the cross for your sins? There's no other way to God. There's no other way to be brought into this song, into this hymn, into this truth than through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you think you're part of the church, but you don't know Jesus is your savior, you're not part of the church. And you need to repent now. And you need to come to Christ now. And you need to ask him to forgive you now. And if you do that, he will forgive you. And if you do that now, he will bring you into his family. And if you do that now, he will be your big brother. But if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, you're not saved. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't know for yourself that your sins were nailed with him on that cross, you've got a problem. And you're not part of the church. And so if that's where you feel you are now, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Speak to one of the pastors or one of the mummies after the church. We would love to pray with you and talk with you more about this. But if we're part of the living, God's living church, we will believe. If we are part of the living God's church, we will love the truth. And we will hold on to the truth no matter the cost. Why are people willing to be put in prison? Why are people willing to die for their face? Because they know this truth is beyond the moment. And they know this truth is for an eternity. And friends, we need to love this truth and hold this truth and, 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 and keep a grip of this truth no matter the cost. 
And in some places around the world are compromising on the truth because they look around their church and they want more people in it. So let's make it easier. Let's take away sin. Let's have more music. Let's have more entertainment. Let's move away from the truth. No, we need the truth. We need to love the truth. That is the pillar. That is where the hope is. That is where our salvation lies in the truth. If we're part of the living God's church, we will love the truth. And so, friends, if you think you are a Christian and you don't love God's word, if you don't love the truth, if you're not excited by this hymn, you need to go back to that first line. You need to go back and say, do I know Christ as my saviour? Because if you do, you will love the truth. And this, this hymn will be something that is amazing to you. If we're part of the living God's church, we will proclaim. We want others to know. People who became Christians in the Bible, as God worked in their hearts and their lives, as Jesus healed them or Jesus did something, he couldn't shut them up. The woman of Samaria went back to the people and told them. The demon-possessed man went back and told them. And, and, and they, they shared the gospel. Are you sharing the gospel? Does your life point people to Christ? When you have that opportunity to share something of the gospel, when someone asks you the question and it's all teed up for you, what do you do? We are to proclaim the truth. If we're part of the living God's church, we'll be looking forward to the future. We'll be looking forward to glory. Is this world satisfying you? No, it's not. There's some great things here. There's some lovely experiences here. But it doesn't satisfy. Everything this world has to offer has an expiry date. Everything this world has to offer comes to an end. Every experience and every joy that we have comes to an end. We need to grasp the next one. Glory is for eternity. All our pain will be wiped away. All our sin will be dealt with. Is this exciting you? Because if you're part of God's living church, if you are part of that, you will be looking forward to this. And if you're not looking forward to it, you need to ask yourself, do I know this truth? Do I know Christ? Because if you're truly forgiven, you will want to be with your Savior. You will want to go on. If we're part of the living God's church, we'll be looking for glory. We'll be waiting for the glory. And lastly, if we're part of the living God's church, we'll act like family. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. We should be taking care of each other. We should be looking out for each other. We should be wanting to help one another. Is that where we're at? Because that's the pillar. And, and God's word tells us when the world looks on at us, how do they know that we are God's? Because we have love for one another. We're a family. Are we acting as a family? Well, we have this hymn. And I pray that this hymn has been a blessing and an encouragement and a challenge to you. Maybe one day in heaven we'll be able to learn the tune 
and we'll be able to sing it together. But in the meantime, I'm going to sing, we're going to sing a, a modern day equivalent uh, 